Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, hi, Rob. How's things? You all right? You ready for Halloween? Uh, I am. What? Pumpkins are out. Are the actual Costumes pumpkins? Ready? Pumpkins are out. What? So, what is what is the Robert Dyer, Nicole Dyer household like for Halloween then? Because, obviously, Nicole comes from the U.S., which mm-hmm. Halloween's huge over there. Uh, oh, yeah. It's kind of cool over here, but 2020 is a different sort of Halloween. So you what is it like? In America, there is no age limit on trick-or-treating. No. Sure and, and I quite like that. You know, I could go and, you know, hit up the neighborhood <laughs> for, for Snickers and, and Mars. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the the house um, is is decorated well. We, we probably have... Um, you know, Halloween decorations, we've probably got half as many as we've got Christmas decorations. We do have a fair few. Um, we've got bags of bones. We've got the usual cobwebs um, and frayed netting. Um, we've got flying ghosts. We've got life-size uh, blow-up Frankensteins. Wow. Um, you know, things for your doors. We've got caution tape all over the place it looks pretty nice well to be to be fair though caution tape is pretty much standard in wales at the minute for 2020 isn't it with (laughs) being in lockdown tier 25 or or whatever you're up to now oh yeah neck of the woods so was the caution tape put up by the welsh government just to stop people knocking on doors or in fact how does that all work so at one point halloween used to be knock 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 hi trick-or-treat thanks for the candy i'm gonna go to the next house I'm mm-hmm. guessing that's been knocked on the head this year. So how is the whole candy thing going to work then? Uh, I don't think it really will. If if, if no. you allow your kids to go and take candy off someone or even from a bowl that somebody's put outside, then uh, you're asking for trouble, really. Yep. Uh, so um, we are using some of said caution tape to uh, block off uh, the entrance to our uh, house. Um uh, there will be a projected uh, show of Slimer <laughs> flying around the place. <laughs> really? That That's yeah, yeah. Um, yeah th- these projectors that you can get for Halloween are all over the place. Um, but me and you, we already have projectors, so why bother buying something that's inferior? Yeah. So all you need to do is project onto um, uh, a sheer material. Um, if you for example, by in you know, like tracing paper, really. Yeah. If you get that and like kind of stick it all over your window, and then project onto it, you can see through it, but it's enough of a surface for, for the projector to work. So you can then kind of, you know, you can have zombies banging on your windows, or if you can find the the relevant clip or or whatever you want. So we've got um, this clip of it's like sl- Slimer. So it's not the real Slimer. Somebody's created it, but it looks close enough flying around the place with proton beams going back and forth, bits of ceiling falling down. And uh, yeah, that'll pro- be projected to the world. So people can see it as they drive by, walk by or break lockdown trick-or-treating i'm very excited i might actually bounce my projector through the back window 
against mm-hmm. the wall at some stupid hour of the night and just freak the <laughs> freak people out big time. Oh, so yeah. I may actually, uh, I may go for that. But uh, there, there is actually um, a special, um, almost. Well, you you watched War of the Worlds um, the other week. I did, Jeff Wayne. Um, yeah, and uh, the 3D holography um, that you saw there. You can actually buy that film that that is pretty much transparent that you can uh, project onto. That is like kind of the ultimate material. Now, if you stick some of that on one of your windows and project onto it, it's great because people can see what is behind it as well. Nice. So then if you've got like kind of a, a zombie banging on the window or Slimer flying around, they can still see your house. So it looks really kind of realistic. That's amazing. I might uh, see what trick or treats I can come up with just to annoy the <laughs> shit out of neighbours, particularly Sounds the good. one that lives next door to me, who's uh, mm-hmm. who's annoying and horrible. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we're not actually here. I mean, we're here now, but on Halloween, we will be off doing stuff. I will be working, sadly. Oh. kind of sucks. You will be sleeping whilst I'm working, but I wanted to do like a special horror podcast episode. But you've confessed before that you're you quite like creepy films, but you're not what you class. I do. You're not a diehard horror fan, though. If I start not. firing out, you know, names like Freddie Alvarez and stuff like that, you'd be like, I don't know. Yeah, no idea. I have no idea who that is. And t- to be fair, I could probably only name like a couple of films that Freddie's done. So. Uh, it's probably not even called Freddy. It's probably called Feddy. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, how can I do it? Well, I was fortunate enough to cover a bunch of Grimfest stuff. So Grimfest are amazing. And mm-hmm. I miss them. And it's only once a year and it sucks. It should be 52 weeks a year. But then I would never get anything else done. And uh, I would be exhausted. But I was... And next year, invite me along, Grimfest. Yeah, well, you've got to apply for that stuff, you know. You've... Yeah, what, you've got to... What do you mean? We're not big enough for them to... Well, uh, well, to be, I am. <laughs> you know, obviously, I, oh, I, 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 meant, I meant, like, little people. <laughs> you know, like, ah, non... Yes. non uh... Six foot six, there's not many people who call me little, no, but still. You know, I mean, like, with a with a media sort of spotlight and stuff. Obviously, they would mm. invite me. There would be no Grimfest without me, but um, <laughs> the, the likes of yourself... <laughs> who's who tends to like that science affliction stuff or whatever oh, it's called. I see how it is. Um, so obviously Grimfest focuses mainly on horror, but it does do a lot of science fiction. But I spent probably like the coolest week ever, and also tiring week because I did like nine podcasts in a week, which is my record. And uh, I recorded a whole bunch of conversations. So this first one is hugely special to me. It is with one of my favourite filmmakers ever and it's the only time I've ever been very, very close to being starstruck. So before Ooh. I introduce who it is and then play the, uh, the it's like 59 minutes I spoke with this wonderful gentleman, uh, I'd like to know when you have been starstruck or if you've not, Rob, what is the closest you've been to being starstruck? Now, starstruck to me means that you were kind of struggling to hold a conversation because you were too busy going, I'm kind of stood face to face or virtually talking with this person. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, yeah, I do have to talk. So has there ever been a time when, when you've been starstruck or what is the closest you've been to being starstruck? This guy that I'm speaking to, this is it. This is the closest I've ever got to, to very closely fluffing my words, but I don't think I did. Mm. Um, for me, um, I unfortunately suffer from this thing where I go into um, business mode whenever I meet uh, somebody from uh, science fiction. 
So a lot of the people I've met, um, because they fall into the science fiction bracket, unfortunately, um, my brain has kicked in and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking business. Yep. Um, so I have to say, um, it's people I meet who aren't necessarily science fiction fans or, well, science fiction celebrities who kind of get me more starstruck. So we're talking about um, John Chalice is a good example. Yes, same. Yeah. Pretty star yeah, yeah. starstruck when I saw uh, John the first time. Yeah. Um, and all I remember thinking is, oh my God, that's John Chalice. Yep. I've got to find a way to invite him to Sci-Fi Wales. So I went over, introduced myself, had a little chat and invited him to the first Sci-Fi Wales. And then found the tenuous links well he was in yes. an episode of doctor who or two that'll do it's like oh sci-fi whales let me get the guy from only fools and horses on the stage yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh shit sci-fi whales let me try and find oh look doctor <laughs> who but no john Charles. i remember telling him on stage that he was one of the only two people that i was very nearly starstruck with but now that list mm-hmm. is probably three but no john Charles for me i agree it's like wow it's yeah. spicy oh my god exactly. nicest guy ever i just really want him nice. to sell me a used car well, he, I, he sold me a couple of uh, signed paperbacks, so he, he's still <laughs> he's still got it. And we did have a chat about wind farms. Apparently, he's not a fan of the wind farms that are mm-hmm. uh, offshore in Clandidno. So, uh, for me, this this starstruck interview that you're going to hear slash conversation is with Mick Garris, who you may not be familiar with. You might be familiar with Rob. He wrote Hocus Pocus, the original one. A fantastic uh-huh. film. He was one of the main writers on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. He fantastic. has worked with Stephen King many, many times. Um, he directed the miniseries <laughs> of The Shining, and he directed mm-hmm. the miniseries of The Stand, which is another Stephen King project, which I have seen 17 times, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think it's six hours long, that's quite mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of times I've seen The Stand. Have you, not, have you seen The Stand, Rob? I haven't. Oh my god! Right, okay, right. We're ending. Somebody oh. send me the DVD. I will. I might well do. Christmas is coming around the corner, so that may well happen. Is it DVD <laughs> or Blu-ray you've got there, Rob? Uh, Blu-ray, Brilliant. but you know, I'm not picky. No, okay. And uh, but he wrote Critters too. Yes, he did. Now, you know, everybody who knows me, if we're going to go back to the '80s, one of my favourite horror films is Critters, Critters 2, Critters 3, even though, you know, it's Critters 3. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, now we're in good company. We are in very, very good company. And, uh, you know, Sleepwalkers, Nightmare Cinema, a whole bunch of stuff. But I was super excited to talk to him about The Stand. He was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I think my opening question to him was like, it feels weird you're getting a Lifetime Achievement Award because you're not 95 years old. You're still working, <laughs> so are we going to get a Lifetime Achievement Award Part 2? Uh, but yeah, I had so much fun chatting to Mick Garris. Eat cinema on so many documentaries, so for me to just get a one-on-one and spend some time with a guy was an absolute uh, pleasure, basically. So what you're going to hear now is the full 59-minute conversation with me and Mick Garris. So enjoy, and we shall be- resume on the next episode. Fantastic. The from page to screen. I am doing okay. I've been looking forward to this conversation 
since it was arranged, but for many, many years before that. So it's good to, good to see you and virtually meet you, Mick. How are Great. you? Likewise. Very well, Stuart. And uh, hopefully the deteriorating planet is not, uh, is not ruining life too much. It's a crazy world, isn't it? It's, I, I remember years and years ago, and I, I think I'd sent you an email saying I've watched The Stand 16 times. <laughs> I, I thought that was a wonderful story of, uh, of, of fiction, but not so much now. It's, you know, I watched it again recently, and it's, uh, it's become a whole lot eerier. It is very weird to have gone through this before, <laughs> but only fictively, yeah. Was. I mean, how many people have actually, I've, I've heard it mentioned a few, a few times on Twitter and stuff, but that must be a common thing this year where people are like, uh, you and Stephen King kind of knew. Well, even <laughs> King would say that he didn't know anything about it. It was just a story. And of course, the big difference is 99% of the world died in the stand. Mm. Here, it's a disease that most people get over, but it's still deadly and horrible and voracious. But um, that's a very big difference between reality and, and King and my uh, portrait of it. And what a wonderful portrait of it it was as well. But I, I will, as much as I'm tempted, I will not spend the next 60 minutes chatting about the stand. I will <laughs> fight back my urge to do that. But it is uh, one of my all-time all favorite. I do class it as a movie, uh, even though it was, you know, it's a TV series. I like to think of it as a six-hour movie. So that way it it's gets to... Movie. It's a movie. I'm on your side. Good. It goes in my favorite movie list. That way I can put it in then. So I'm okay with that. So uh, so we've got... Oh, we've got, we've got I realize my video isn't on and yours is. I, I didn't want to mention it. I didn't want to go, I'm not, I'm not going to make my first uh, thing to Mick Garris going, oh, can we not do video? <laughs> no worries. Here there, I am. Oh, that is a nice backdrop as well, I uh, might add. Yes. Yep. That, is, that is. A lot of nice signed books and other things. And of course, my latest book here, not to, not to uh, promote it overly. You should always promote. That's, that's where you started. It's where I, where I'm, I'm more comfortable promoting stuff, so feel wow. free. We, 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 we will get on to promoting and pimping out your projects, I promise you. <laughs> okay. so, uh, so one of the things that I had, it's okay, I've done a lot of podcast interviews and a lot of face-to-face -face interviews, and in an ideal world, we would have been doing this in a little bar in Manchester, uh, you know, at Grimfest. But thankfully, yeah, we're, we're doing it here virtually, is how do I cram everything that I want to say I want to talk about into an hour because you well we can go you know, over oh yeah brilliant welcome to the nine hour podcast brilliant well okay just well, kidding maybe, just kidding maybe 90 minutes <laughs> let's just watch the stand and we'll just talk about it there we go yeah we'll do a live commentary because obviously you find when somebody's releasing a film or a book or, or a show you go well, the focus is going to be on the book the film or the show so it's it's relatively easy lifetime achievement awards i i don't know how i feel about lifetime achievement awards i think if somebody's 110 and they go Do you know what i'm kind of done now i'm retired i'm just gonna go you know watch movies in my house and you go okay let's talk about life but you've you're still busy and i hope you're still keeping busy so i'm still I don't know about the lifetime achievement. It's very well earned, but you've you've got a lot of projects to come, and I look forward to watching all of them and, and reading all of them. So, how does it feel to get a lifetime achievement award? It's a weird feeling. I've gotten a few from festivals. It's a tremendous honor. And by the way, this is the Grimfest Award. Right? Oh, it nice. hasn't been released or announced yet, but just Oops. so you and I can see, it's that's, beautiful. That's very nice. Um, 
And on one hand, it's like, oh, is my career over? (laughs) (laughs) And on the other hand, it's, you know, knowing that people appreciate work that you've done over the course of your career, whether it's continuing or not, is still a a very humbling and, and great honor, you know, no matter where the festival is, but particularly one that, you know, Grimfest has a long history and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's humbling. Um, and I will admit to the sin of pride occasionally <laughs> when that happens, but it's also really surprising with all the people out there. So deserving. I feel like I'm at the bottom of that ladder. No, you so, are, you are so not at the bottom of the ladder, but I, well, I, 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 I like your, I like your humble nature. And that's <laughs> something that comes across on a lot of the documentaries. Cause I've seen, it, it's so surreal for me to be having a conversation with because I've seen you on so many documentaries. Most recently, Clapboard Jungle. Uh, I saw oh, you, yeah. which was shown at Fright Fest, and it's you always come across as as you are now, humble and and sort of happy to be where you are and loving the career that you're having and you've had and stuff. And that's it's it's really sweet if I, if it's okay to say so. Well, thank you, but it's it's also you know I just my work happens to be public. And so there's more attention put on on people whose work is public, but I have a job like you have a job, and although I love it and it's my hobby as well as my 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 job, um, it's it's still, you know, I'm just a guy doing the best work that I can in a field that happens to have fans, you know, lots of fans. So. So as I was saying, it's like, how do I do, how do I do this, this conversation? And Nightmare Cinema has five stories in it, which is a film you put together. It's an anthology movie. Yep. So I thought I'm going to do an anthology podcast. So okay. I've, got, I've got five little sections of things to cover. And I, I, there's no way I'll be able to cover everything at once. But I, I spent last night, I work a night shift job. So I was working from 8, 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. this morning. So I've, I've slept about four hours. But uh, hey. I am... You know, I'm totally fine with that. And, well, we'll, uh, call this, we'll call this chapter one. This is chapter one. Yes, definitely. So hopefully there will be a Nightmare Cinema chapter two, and there may be a chapter two with our conversations as well, fingers crossed. Exactly. So, so that That's is good. So publicity is something I'm massively interested in because it's something that I have done. I started off just being a film fan, then started to speak to filmmakers, which for a film geek is amazing. You know, I remember the time when people on the screen were, were not approachable. They were, they were like a different, they lived in a different place. You could never communicate with them. You could never speak to them. You could never do this. Um, and, and you lived in that time as well where, you know, the, the 70s and the, the early 80s and beyond. So before the years of the internet. But, uh, so publicity I'm massively interested in. So you started working for this little corporation which I believe did end up making quite a few movies, apparently the Star Wars Corporation. How did, how did that come about? Well, I had been doing journalism, first music journalism, then film journalism and doing interviews and things like that. And I was working at Tower Records and was the night manager there. And a friend of mine told me that they were looking for someone at the Star Wars Corporation. And so I went and had lunch with the head of the company, Charlie Lippincott. And it, I, it turns out that it was a receptionist job for $150 a week. And I thought, how great to work on Star Wars. And, 
you know, it's not much money. In fact, it was definitely less money than I was being paid as the night manager at Tower Records. But it was an entree into the film world. And so uh, while I was acting as a receptionist, I was also doing my journalism. And uh, then I would get more and more responsibilities. They'd ask me uh, about writing uh, press releases and uh, annotating the, the shooting script uh, of Star Wars with the continuity and putting it together so that it could be uh, a book that people could understand and read, the making of Star Wars with the script and continuity matched up. So it was not just the script, including things that were not shot or were not kept in the movie, but exactly as the movie played. So things like that. And then I was asked to operate R2-D2 at some of the live uh, uh, appearances, including my only trip to the Oscars as R2-D2's keeper there, uh, presenting the sound editing award for in 1978 um, at the Oscars. So, it, it basically was kind of the beginning of my working within the system as opposed to being a journalist uh, outside the system. And it led to me being offered opportunities to do specialized publicity in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. Now, were these the, the behind the scenes films for things like The Thing and, and, yeah. and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, those were things that I hired myself to do because I was cheaper than anybody else. <laughs> and uh, and it turned out that they were very useful. Um, and I learned about putting pieces of film together in making a narrative, even though there was no narrative to start with. In documentary work, you find the narrative after you shoot all of the, the material that you can. So it was a real education. I really... Uh, then I went into uh, publicity, doing specialized publicity there, but then I got hired by a PR firm. And it was a job I hated. Really? Corporate, you know, doing, doing real publicity and, and, you know, representing people I really had no interest in, in a lot of cases, um, where I'd have to try and get them on The Tonight Show or in Time Magazine or all these highfalutin places before there was much in the way of genre press. Um, not something that I loved, but all that time I had started writing fiction as a 12-year-old, and then I started writing screenplays in my 20s. And one of my publicity jobs was at Avco Embassy, and one of the executives there hired me to write a screenplay that was not produced, but it was the first time I got paid to write a screenplay. And then things kind of took, uh, took their own direction after that. There's a, a long answer to your as, question. As a tribute to Avco, I'm wearing my uh, Escape from New York uh, uh, t-shirt uh, there. Yeah. I, I spent about an hour today going, which t-shirt do I go for? Do I go for my Texas Chainsaw Massacre t-shirt, which would also have been a great choice. But I thought, Absolutely. oh, let's, let's go Avco and uh, have a bit of Escape from New York. I do have an Avco Embassy t-shirt that I wear occasionally. So. Oh, <laughs> your, your sort of geek collection must be insane. You should, I hope to see a Mick Garris museum one day with, with, <laughs> with all the stuff in it. Cause it's, uh, well, it's not like Guillermo del Toro, but I do have a handful of things right outside. My office is next door to my house. Yeah. And in between, at the head of the path, is one of the topiary lions from The Shining. That's wow. right at the head of the path to my office. What was the first sort of geek thing you ever collected or got? For me, it was a signed X-Files, the movie poster, which ah. somebody, somebody got me from the premiere. What was yours? Um, I had a, a, a psycho poster, but 
the first real thing was when I was working on ET doing uh, publicity at Universal, Steven Spielberg signed an ET poster to me and it was great. And Steven knew me from before because he had been on my Z channel interview show back in 1980. Mm. And so then uh, that was the last episode we ever did um, because the program director at the Z channel killed his wife and himself and that oh. ended everything. That, yeah, that would, that would yeah. take a show off the air, wouldn't it, that one? Was that the episode where, where with the one with Stephen where you were talking about Close Encounters? Yes. Although I was watching that last night on your uh, Mick Garris Interviews website, which I think is a great website, by the way, because uh, it's, it's all the archival stuff. You can go in one place and find it all. So there we go. That's me pimping out your projects, not you. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very good website. Awesome. So, so you want, I once swapped a tweet with you, I think it's probably a few months ago, and I asked you, which one person have you met that starstruck you? And your answer was Steven Spielberg. Would yeah. that still be is that the same answer? Yeah, I mean, also, I met John Houston um, once when I was uh, going to a meeting at the Beverly Hills Hotel doing publicity, and he was waiting for his car in the car park uh, down uh, underneath. And I was just about to start shooting my first short film ever. And I was totally intimidated, but I thought, I'm either going to get the chance to speak with John Houston or not. And I very trepidatiously approached him and said, Mr. Houston, I'm about to shoot my first short film and I want to tell you what an inspiration you are and, and how much I appreciate your work. And, and he was very kind and asked my name. And, you know, and so that was pretty humbling. And when I was doing publicity at Universal, I used to see Alfred Hitchcock wow. go in and out of his office, helped from his limo by his driver because he could barely walk. So I didn't meet him, but that would be the most starstruck. But yeah, Spielberg, aside from being the biggest movie maker of all time and being an enormous fan of his work, getting to meet him and interviewing on the Z Channel show and then later working for him, um, you know, he gave me a career that I otherwise would not have had. And, uh, and it was the biggest filmmaker on the planet doing that. So it was humbling and exciting and thrilling and everything you can possibly imagine. I think probably a little bit scary as well, I would think, isn't it? Intimidating. Yeah. You're like, I really hope I don't mess this up because he's yeah. the biggest filmmaker on the planet and I don't want to, and you wouldn't and you didn't, but I would be kind of petrified, I think, if, if something like that happened to me. so It's intimidating it's, to get yeah. an opportunity from somebody that, uh, you know, the, I was the first writer asked to write an episode of Amazing Stories. I didn't know it until many years later that I was the first one. And I was terrified. I wrote it in three days and turned it in. And they called me and asked me to do another one right away. And then halfway through writing the second one, uh, they asked me to go on staff and be the story editor. And I'd never had a job uh, as a screenwriter before other than this opportunity to write uh, something for AFCO Embassy. But this was to go on staff and be the, the story editor on a network TV show produced by Steven Spielberg. And it had some amazing cast in it as well. Through it's run, I believe Kevin Costner is one of the names I remember from from one of the the early episodes Absolutely. of that show. So you ended up Absolutely. writing ten of them, didn't you? You're credited as ten of them. Yeah, I wrote or co-wrote ten of them, and I directed one of them. Nice. 
So, I mean, even then, it's like that's one one hell of a trajectory, isn't it? I mean, you start making films at 12 years old, you write screenplays by the time you're 20, you're receptionist and controlling R2-D2 at the Star Wars Corporation. You've sat yeah. down with a, a, a crazy list of people. Uh, so, And what, I think one of the most popular ones, which just, I don't ever want it to go away, but it will never go away, is the fear on film. Oh uh, yeah, that that yeah. always you you can literally just see people talking about that probably anywhere in the planet, uh, at any given time. Obviously, obviously, at that time we had no idea that that would hang around and be resurrected repeatedly, but it was just an idea I had when I was doing specialized publicity at Universal on promoting their genre films, and the genre was always the gutter, especially at the major studios. So they were low budget movies, they were put out, but they, it was just like, we'll make money off of these, but we don't have any respect for them. So who knew that these three filmmakers would become such giants in the genre and have such long lasting and influential careers. And they're all sitting at a table with me in my black velour jacket in 1980, yeah. uh, 81, talking about their new movies. So how do you prepare for a conversation like that? Because obviously you've got a set amount of time scale yeah. and you've got three legendary filmmakers there. How, do, how does yourself make Garris go, right, this, these are the things I'm going to cover? Well, you know, because all three of them had universal movies to discuss, um, it, it, it's really the generalities and the specifics. I, in those days, I would always arm myself with a list of questions. Uh, and I probably even had the tablet in my hand, if I'm not mistaken, when I did that interview. And for years, I would always be prepared with a list of questions, but always with the flexibility of mm. letting the tributary of an interview take its course. As you know, um, some of the most interesting things you find out are not the things you ask about, mm. but you lead into those things. So in that case, you know, I knew the work of all of these guys very well, and I was friendly with all of them as well, um, and had known them before uh, that interview was ever done. Um, and then in my Z Channel interview, I always had a list of questions. Sometimes, because I was so young and so green, uh, I often stuck to the sheet of questions a little more than later. But the last couple of years of the podcast, you know, the first season I would have a list of questions and rarely look at it, but the last three seasons I've not even bothered having a list of questions. I just come prepared knowing their work, being inquisitive, and having some very general and very specific questions about careers rather than movies. You know, the, yeah. we often get contacted by publicists for the podcast to do an interview about somebody's new movie. And that's not what the show is. It's an hour about their career and what inspires them and what informs them and what is their intent and how did they start? What opportunities did they have? What do they wish they can do? Rather than tell me about your new movie. <laughs> you know, I'm not interested. I am interested in your new movie, but I'm also interested in the rest of your life. Yeah. It's like, because I, I, do, I, I do a podcast as well. Um, yeah. And then, you know, these video ones I'm doing on behalf of Grimfest, so generally minor audio podcasts. And I find I do get a lot of filmmakers who will jump on and we'll talk about the movie. And the feedback I get, if somebody is listening and they've not seen the movie, then they go, well, I don't, 
I've not seen the film, so I don't. They're not in, engaged. But what I love yeah. about Postmortem is, yes, you might cover a lot of movies in yours, but it's two friends having a conversation. You know, I yeah. loved one of my favorite episodes that you've done was yourself and Matt Frewer. Uh, um, I love Matt Frewer. I've been a fan of Matt's for years, and he, yes, you covered the stand and, and various other projects and stuff. But it was just it was you and Matt having a conversation, and it's. That's what I like to I like to eavesdrop on on filmmakers just chatting. Well, that's the thing too, society. which is filmmakers talking and not just you know. So there are things we share in common in our work that we can talk about in ways that um, journalists may not be able to have the same perception or perspective, and and all of them they seem to become friends by the end of the show. Many of the people who've been on, I've never met before, but they feel comfortable and, and I've learned something from every single guest on the podcast. Are we going astray of your five part? We are, uh, we are slightly. This is, this is sort of like a Christopher Nolan time jumping all over the place type thing. But that's generally, you've sort of said it yourself, you will have a, a rough idea of questions that you're going to ask. And then depending on what your answer is, it may just go off in a totally, totally different uh, direction. But I will always get back on the same path again. So who's right. you, who, have you, uh, who have you not managed to sit down with yet that you would quite like to? Or, you know, who have you missed? I mean, unfortunately, well, some people aren't around anymore. And, and that's happened to me. It's a case of I would love to speak to that. And I've just not had that opportunity. And, and then they've yeah, passed on. Yeah. Well, you know, Wes did the postmortem TV show 10 years ago. And Toby did the TV show. The day before Toby died, we were talking about scheduling him for the podcast. Um, you know, Larry Cohen, we were talking about him coming on the show. He was a good friend. Uh, Wes coming on the podcast that never worked out. But J.J. Abrams and I keep talking about uh, about him coming on. Um, you know, there are there are people I would love to get. Most of the people I would love to get, we've been lucky enough to get. I'd love to get Christopher Nolan on, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. And we keep trying with Spielberg, and I think that may work one of these days. I'd love to get Bob Zemeckis on. You know, uh, we... Uh, We've had so many makeup effects guys on. I'm trying to get Danny Elfman to come on. And, you know, these are all people who I think it's possible they'll all be on. And we've already recorded some uh, for when we relaunch hmm. soon. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be announcing a launch date soon because we've finalized our contract with our new home. And I'm really excited about some of the guests that we'll, we've already recorded and have been keeping in abeyance uh, because of you know this meltdown yeah but, so you, you you'd sort of mentioned there you said oh i don't know if that would happen if you could go back to let's just say the, the 11 year old mick garris and go oh, by the way you know th this is how your life is going to be and these are the people you're going to work with and uh, would that blow oh, your mind i'm thinking it probably would completely completely <laughs> yeah, it would. And, you know, starting with my first big writer crush was Ray Bradbury. I read everything he'd written at the age of 12. And then when I was a senior in high school, I went and saw him speak at a local college and I interviewed him for my high school newspaper. And then I interviewed him several times afterwards. I interviewed Rod Serling when I was, nice. you know, in high school. And so who knew that I would talk, those were probably my two biggest idols at the time. And 
I found that it was possible to do that. Then I went into music journalism and I interviewed Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, among others, Frank Zappa, you know. So the fact that it was possible to meet my heroes just blew my mind and it still does. It blows mine. I mean, I'm sitting in front of a, a signed George A. Romero yeah. poster uh, and there's a few other signatures Tom Savini's on there and Galen Ross and, and Ken Foray but for me you know if I sit down now and again and think I remember the conversation I had with George Romero and I pitched this little film about Lamb of the Dead to him and he smiled and I still have the photo of him holding this little fluffy sheet that just blows my mind it's like <laughs> you know I come from a small town in, in Scotland originally but moved to England and I've, I've met and had a conversation with George A. Romero it just blows my mind you're on that list now it, i will be <laughs> like wow i was telling people that i'm going to spend an hour chatting with you and he went oh what's what's mick garris done and i said uh i said well he, he wrote hocus pocus and their their heads just wow they blew up so yeah well that's that's <laughs> the thing with george romero they don't say what's george romero done with mick no. garris they say what's mick garris done so i mean that just, keeps- <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people that, that, you know, they're not within my film geek circle. They are people that work at my nighttime job. So they probably watch like 10 films a year. So, right. you know, that sort of thing. So do not do not take it bad. They're like, what's Mick Garris done? If I, oh, you know, I, I start rattling titles off and they go, ah, they, they, they clearly get it. That is a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're filmmaking. So you started making short films. We're moving on to the next section of the nightmare podcast nightmare in a good way that's not a bad yeah. way i hope uh, so you started shooting films at 12 what what yeah. inspired you to make films i mean i'm guessing there would have been films that you saw that thought i want to do that i i want to try yeah. to make movies what were some of the, the the childhood films that that you loved well i loved all the universal classics those were my entry drug and they would run in the afternoon on saturdays or late at night at 11.30 at night on the local channel with a guy wearing a rubber mask uh, introducing uh, the movies. And it was just a close-up shot of him in a rubber mask going, <laughs> and, uh, but I saw all of those. And then, you know, cheapo things like the four skulls of Jonathan Drake and stuff that was nothing that withstood the test of time other than the universal classics. But I watched everything I could And I didn't know anything about filmmaking, but I got, as a graduation present from junior high school, I got an eight millimeter camera. And so I just kind of fiddled with it. I didn't know that you shot scenes and then edited coverage and the like. I'd shoot a shot and then I'd shoot another shot and then I'd shoot the other shot. I had no sound Mm -hmm. and I was just playing with it. And I realized if I stopped the camera and took something out of the frame and started it again, that thing would disappear. And if I moved a toy a certain way, a couple of frames, every, you know, I didn't have a frame by frame uh, trigger on my camera. You just hit it and hope that it wouldn't do too many frames at a time. I could make things move around the screen uh, magically. And, and so I had no knowledge about filmmaking, never read a book about it or anything, but it was a toy and I played with it in the first narrative film I made was The Return of the Count, which was a Dracula movie for which I built a coffin and a friend of mine, you know, wore a suit with a top hat and a fright wig under it. Uh, So uh, that was my vampire. Um, And so I was making 12-year-old horror movies and magic movies and things. 
And are they, they av- are they available, or are, are, they, are they being lost in house moves? Absolutely not available. <laughs> oh, oh, even no. if they were, you You'd would be never. like, never, not happening. No, no, I that that film behind me is not available. You cannot watch it. You're not even seeing it. Even for a twelve year old, they were probably shitty. Oh, <laughs> every, everybody's a critic, and I think everybody's their own biggest critic as well. I'm sure they were amazing. Unless you're a hack, you better be your biggest critic. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so filmmaker, and then you progress to script writing. Yes. I mean, that's, that's kind of a natural progression, I think, isn't it, to go make films? Now we're gonna, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I never made serious films. I never did things that I thought I could send to festivals or anything. I n- didn't know what it was. I didn't even know what a director was um, and what a director did. And then I started writing scripts that, you know, I wrote a bunch of things that nobody ever saw, nobody ever bought. Um, but I had, I was given the job of writing an ep- uh, a draft of the Philadelphia experiment. And I was the first writer on it, but they ended up making something totally different from the script that I wrote. But it was an experience. I actually got paid to do that. Uh, A guy, a producer paid me a thousand dollars to adapt a book and write a screenplay from a book, found out he never got the rights to that book. (laughs) But it was an exercise and I was paid to do something that I would have done for free or even paid him to do if I had any money. But it really did start, you know, I was writing on spec, lots of scripts, and one in particular got into the hands of Steven Spielberg's production company. It was a script called Uncle Willie, took place in the 1950s about a kid's show host. And while I was shooting the making of Goonies and interviewing Spielberg on the set in Astoria, Oregon, his reader was writing a report on how good Uncle Willie was. And the last three words of his report was hire this man. So that gave me the opportunity for that first amazing story script and then to do that. And then he asked me to uh, choose one of the one of a couple of amazing story scripts he wanted to turn into a feature and that ended up being batteries not included. So I was writing for him and doing that. So all of the people who never would have hired me, suddenly um, I was desirable as a screenwriter because I'd been knighted by King Stephen. So Disney came calling and they offered me the opportunity to direct and do an episode of their Disney Sunday movie. Um, but they, I also did, uh, because of that Spielberg connection, they asked me to write Hocus Pocus. And the producer, David Kirshner, had done an American tale for Spielberg and knew my work from Amazing Stories and thought we would be simpatico. And it worked out great. And even though they hired 11 other writers after me on Hocus oh, Pocus, okay. <laughs> but I was the first one yeah. and, you know, maintained enough of my material to have three credits on the film. So, so that's kind of nice. And, and, Hocus, that, that was, yeah. and Hocus Pocus is definitely a film that has stood the test of time. I saw the outrage when people were talking about sequel or remake as, as the internet loves to do it, just it flips its lid and seems to think that the original will disappear if they do a sequel or a remake. And then, ah. you know, but uh, so the first one's definitely beloved. Yeah, people, so. don't, people don't remember that it was not particularly successful when it came out and it's far more successful now than it's ever been. Um, you know, it's, it's revived in theaters constantly. Every Halloween, 
theaters and now drive-ins are showing it for Halloween. And it's, it's kind of astonishing. And, and, you know, they do a hocus pocus show at Disney world and it's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, there will be a sequel or remake. I'm not involved in it other than uh, having created the characters and things with David Kirshner, but um, the sisters are returning so far as I know. But uh, yeah, a lot of my friends were super giddy and they often watch Hawker's Pocus. And for some reason, people always watch it more in October, obviously, because it's, it's horror season and stuff. But I think it's a film you could just watch any month of the year. So. Well, what's funny about it is that it came out in July. It's, yeah, people forget that, I think, don't they? Yeah, but yeah, it, your friends must mostly be females. Females seem to love that movie. Yeah. Do you think they can probably uh, relate to one of the witches, do you think? Do you think that's where the love of it comes from? They go, I think I'm that one. I think well, I'm, I'm Ben Midler or... Yeah, it's very female-centric and <laughs> it's funny. And yeah, each of them has a very distinctive character, but it's also got two pretty strong female characters aside from the sisters in, in Danny and, uh, and the little one. Uh, <laughs> uh, now I can't remember her character's name, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of female characters to relate to at a time when most movies were aimed at a male audience yeah and and still are to a certain extent i mean not as much now as as they were but you know certainly at that time in the early 90s they definitely were more male orientated weren't they yeah so we will shift on to our next topic which is i it has to be stephen king doesn't it we have to <laughs> you have worked with this guy several times so even on some projects that i wasn't familiar with uh the attack quicksilver highway for example uh, uh -huh. But you you have worked with and riding the bullet, which which I watched, I think probably earlier this year, which I I hadn't seen before, but I picked the DVD up and I watched it and I loved it. It's very good. Oh, thank but you. Yeah. So, so your relationship with King, how did how did that begin, and and what is it about you two that you just, you work so damn well together? And it's great. I love it. But, uh, well, thank you. Um, it 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 started when uh, I had done Psycho Four and. Uh, and I was doing writing and developing projects and, and uh, they were looking for a director for Sleepwalkers. And my agents put me up for it. And, <clears throat> and so I had a meeting with the studio and they really liked me. They said, this went great. We're obviously going to hire you, but we have to meet with somebody else first because their agent and we have a, a really good relationship with them. And out of respect, we're going to see their clients. So they hired the other client. <laughs> oh. um, but that other client started changing everything. And, you know, it's called Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. But if it gets rewritten a lot, Stephen King's not going to let you call it Stephen King's no. Sleepwalkers. I think the lawnmower man is a very good lesson in that one, is it? It's yeah. like, get my name off that thing. It's nothing like the, the, the novella. That's right. That's right. And so... Uh, after a while uh, of development going far afield from what King had written, I got a call to come in and meet with them again. What I didn't know was that that meeting was my moving into an office on the Columbia lot and uh, starting pre-production on the film. And it was, wait, what? That's a, good, that's a good meeting. That's the sort of meeting you want, isn't it, really? It was a great meeting. <laughs> and so that was the first opportunity to work with him and you know, the studio would ask for changes and I would offer to, to, to do them, but I would call Steve. We only had a phone relationship at that time. 
And he would say, no, no, let me, let me send you a few pages. And he'd write new pages and fax them to me, if you can remember that. Mm -hmm. And they were great. And we had a great time. And we went through a lot of issues with the, getting the R rating. And I went to New York to screen the film for him and Tabby. And he loved it. And he just was laughing and screaming and jumping and had a great time with it. And so that was really the beginning of our collaboration and our friendship. Uh, and when The Stand came along three years later, or a couple, uh, oh, it was only a year later, uh, he said, look, uh, would you be interested in doing this? And they sent a 460-page script. <laughs> wow. And uh, how, even though I was now here, I'd had a number one box office movie in the theaters and being asked to go back to television. And it was like, I don't know. And then I read it and it's, it's the stand, my favorite. I love this. And this script is fantastic. And, you know, it's an opportunity to do top of the line television instead of bottom of the line features. So um, it's the best decision I ever made. And, and not that I ever paused, but, um, you know, it was, it was so great because I learned a lot. I'd never done anything of such a large scope before. Um, here it was a hundred day shoot in six states and almost a hundred scripted locations and 125 speaking parts and all of this. And here, what I'd done before, the biggest thing I'd ever done was Critters 2. Yep. So this was an opportunity with high-end actors, Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis and Gary Sinise and all these people um, doing something that was really of value beyond just the genre. And I don't minimize my genre, I respect it, but the world doesn't. Yeah. So this was an opportunity to do something. And lo and behold, it became the highest rated miniseries in history. So, so that really, we really got close on the stand. And then three years later, there was The Shining and then you know, it's been several years since we've been able to work on something together. I've worked on a couple of projects that haven't been made yet. But um, he's the greatest collaborator you could ever have. At least in my case, he's never said, I think you should do this. And yet he's a resource I can go to and ask questions and get his opinion, solicit his thoughts. Um, and, and I think we are simpatico in that he's a few years older than me, but we're still from... Uh, pretty much the same generation. We have a lot of the same touchstones in our cultural upbringing, television, comic books, movies, music, all of that stuff. We were both raised by divorced mothers uh, under very, very economically tight circumstances. So it, um, we have a lot in common and, and, and a lot that we don't have in common. You know, he loves, he loves, uh, uh, sports. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not a sport person either. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there are differences, but, but the similarities uh, that we share are the important ones. And, and we just really get along well together creatively and personally. I also think, I mean, obviously I'm putting words in Stephen King's mouth, which he doesn't, certainly doesn't need me to do that as well. Uh, he's got enough words and they're very good. But I also think with, with your name attached to a Stephen King project, 
that project is in very good hands because obviously there was a time when films were being made with Stephen King's name attached and the films, shall we say, were not up to the quality of the, the source material. So people uh-huh. would people would make a film, put a name on it, Stephen King, that'll make some money. And sometimes it did, and it kind of upset a lot of the film fans. So yeah. then then I think Stephen probably became a bit more protective over his projects. Go, I'm not just going to just let people make my films. I I need to give them to people I trust. And, and Mick Garris seems to definitely be one of those names, Frank Darabont being another one, I would believe. But uh, Well, yeah, and he, he earned director approval, which is a big, big stake that is very hard to attain. But, you know, there's Rob Reiner, there's Frank Darabont, there's Mike Flanagan. So there are a lot of people who are very protective of his work and, and respectful of it. So I'm lucky to be in that club. And we're lucky that you're in that club as well. Because it's like, <laughs> as, as a film fan, you would get very excited. You go, oh, it's a new Stephen King project coming out. And back in the day when it wasn't so good, you would be like, oh, I'm, I'm quite sad about that because I was really looking forward to it. Now, when Stephen King's name's attached to a, to a TV show or a film, you know that you're going to get something quality, like the, the yeah. it, it chapter one, chapter two, yeah, you know, yeah. various. I could, I could rattle off a huge list of them. but Absolutely. It, and let's not forget David Cronenberg and The Dead Zone. You know. I, love, I love that film. I was really nervous because they ended up making a TV show of The Dead Zone. And I'm like, I'm not going to like this show, but I actually did. It was just very different from the film. And I keep trying to decide what's my favorite Cronenberg film. And I, I can't decide between The Dead Zone and Scanners. I'm kind of... Uh, and I did publicity oh, Scanners. Oh, you're just running laps around me now. Show off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but my favorite is probably Dead Ringers. Yes. It's brilliant. Good choice, but I spent years trying to get a, an autograph from David Cronenberg. I eventually got one. I think I sent a fax off to, to his uh, publicist or whatever. And I, I managed to get one when he was making the film Spider. So oh. that's, that's in my other. Uh, he was in the UK for that. Right? Yes, so I managed to get that. So I'm very happy. And so John Carpenter one behind me as well. I, I, I very yeah. nicely uh, positioned it on a, on a pillow. It doesn't normally live there. Uh, I think that picture is from when he was doing The Fog, which was my first job. Yeah. So you've just you've just done everything. I've you know everything I'm I've so- watched. You're somehow in the background or the <laughs> foreground uh, working on it. So that's I'm, I'm Zelly. If yes. you remember that Woody Allen movie, I do. So has there ever been a Stephen King project that you'd love to tackle that you haven't, and one you can talk about? Obviously, I mean I would love to see uh, Sleepwalkers two, for example, because I I'm a big <laughs> fan of the first one. I think this. Well, this, this I don't know if you can, if if lightning could strike twice. You know, sequels are usually done for financial reasons, not for creative reasons. Mm-hmm. And it would be fun to do it, but it wouldn't be something I go. You know, I'm really dreaming of doing the sequel to Sleepwalker. Yeah. Um, but I really wanted to do Gerald's Game, and for years we talked about it, and we came close to doing it, and for a short time. King said he wanted to direct it and I would produce it. So I would be there with him throughout the process. But Flanagan did a great job. You know, that, that book, most people thought was unfilmable, but Flanagan came up with a great solution to it. And I had some ideas on doing that. Um, and there's a short story that I've adapted into a pilot for a series and done a series outline from that I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. But so far we have not been able to set it up but I, I really like it. And uh, uh, it's called Lucky, but that's not the name of the material it's based on. So okay. I can 
<laughs> so I will just watch for you tweeting out the word lucky and I'll be like, right, I'm on the call. I'll yeah. do my Sherlock Holmes thing and, and go down the rabbit hole. not going to work. I'm not going to feel one <laughs> um, So, I, but we almost, he asked me to do Storm of the Century and I was busy doing something else. And, uh, you know, I, it was not my favorite story, but I would work with King anytime. But that, that six hour or four and a half hour miniseries cost $40 million. And the stand at eight hours or six hours with no breaks yeah. was only 28. Wow. Uh, Over the century cost a fortune. But I wasn't able to do that. But, you know, I would, if Stephen King wrote the phone book, I would want to. <laughs> that, I'm in. So pretty much if Stephen phones up and says, I've got a project for you, do you want to do it? You just go, yes. Um, I, oh, yeah. I, what is it? <laughs> I certainly would. And I would, yeah. Mainly because he he is such a great guy. And if he is involved, the last few things we've done together, he wasn't really involved. It was all done from a distance. He wasn't in it. He wasn't on the set or anything. And that's always great. But when he's there, that's when things really are exciting. You know, he was there for the stand for over half of it. And a good two-thirds of it, he was on location for The Shining. In fact, he was writing The Green Mile in the hotel when we were shooting. So, um, and he would show me chapters after he'd finished them. I would get to pour over the pages before they went nice. to the future. And it was pretty, pretty thrilling to be inside and at the hotel that the, the book was actually inspired by. Because it was always, I remember the the, the stand, basically, I, I was working in a video store at the time, and we weren't allowed to touch the new releases until like a week after, but the stand came out on the two VHSs, and I really wanted to watch it, because I, I, I loved the, the scope, I've read the book, I think it was the first King book I ever read, and I, wow. I tore through that thing, well, I say tore through, it probably took me a few months, but for me, I just... I could not get enough of that book and I still have my own copy of that. So I sneaked back into the video store at two o'clock in the morning, took out the VHS tapes because I put these reserve tags in them so nobody else could have them. And I watched it until probably about, you know, nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and then took them back in and then started a full shift that day. And then when I was able to buy them, I, I just, I watched it quite, I don't want to use religiously. I watched it very, very often. Uh, and I think at the minute I'm up to 16, 17 times that I've seen the entirety thing. I have the soundtrack and I've upgraded to the Blu-ray, which is very oh, good. isn't the Blu-ray beautiful? It they looks amazing. Better than it's ever looked because yes. it was shot on 16 millimeter film, which is not the norm in American television or it wasn't at that time, it was 35. Mm -hmm. But I never thought there'd be a Blu-ray because it would be so expensive, they'd have to go back and reconform and transfer the negative to an HD master, shot by shot, and redo all of that. And they did, and it looks better than it's ever looked before. I was stunned how amazing it looked. Because I, I picked this up, I think, last week, because I've still got the, the American DVD, the Artisan release was oh, the yeah. previous one that I had. Uh, and then I'm in the process of moving house at the minute, so it's, it's all boxed up. And I'm like, I want to watch this again. So I ordered the Blu-ray, put it on, and instantly it's like, wow. Yeah, it's like uh, seeing a new movie. Yeah, it is. It is very good. Uh, I I was hoping that some of your uh, some of your behind the scenes thing, because I heard you mention on a post mortem one that you had lots of behind the scenes footage that was shot on that. Will that ever see the light of day, or is that in the the Mick Garris vault? 
It, it may. The only reason it didn't was because they decided to put the stand all on one disc and there was no room to put any extras on it. And <clears throat> the fact that there is such an extensive commentary track with so many people all the way yeah. through it, that's, that's a pretty good extra. But um, I have it all. And uh, if we're able to, to do something with it, maybe we will. You know, I haven't done, I haven't really been maintaining the Mick Garris interviews uh, website so much. I keep it active, but I haven't added anything to it. But maybe if I, if I'm lacking in things to do for long enough, maybe I'll post some on there, but it would be a, a lot of work. I don't think you ever lack in anything to do, though. It's like, you know, writing, directing, producing, podcasting, interviewing. You, you appear on lots and lots of documentaries helping other filmmakers. I don't think, has there ever been a time where you have lacked something to do? It doesn't appear that that's the case. You seem to be yeah, well, constantly busy. That's the thing about writing. But also when things come out, that's after months of work and a lot of waiting, too. But I haven't directed since Nightmare Cinema. And, you know, especially now with the, the pandemic situation, there's very little production going on. It's slowly ramping up again. But, you know, it's at a time where uh, things have, have slowed down as far as production goes. So I'm writing books and I'm podcasting and I'm, I'm always keeping busy, but I've always got time to myself. I do my five or six miles of hiking every day and uh, trying to keep healthy. So how long, does, how long does five or six miles of hiking take? That... Um, let's see. It's usually uh, anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. Yeah. Nice. And that is, is that how Mick Garris relaxes? It's how it's one way I relax, yeah. Yeah. What, are, what are some of the others? What do you do? Because, I, I, you know, obviously I, I see you in a lots of documentaries and, and social media and stuff, and it's people asking questions like I'm doing and have been doing for the past 50 odd minutes. So, you know, what does Mick do to, to relax and in your downtime? I read and I watch movies and, and I love travel, but I haven't been able to do it. You know, one so, of the things about the work that I do is that I get invited to places like Grimfest and festivals all around the world. And that was something, one of my favorite things ever to do was meet new people, explore new places, hike all those places everywhere, see movies from different uh, perspectives globally. Mm. And so travel was, was a big part of, of my recreation. And uh, it's now not a part of, of everyday life anymore. Same. They say I've been. I barely left the house in seven months because uh, of lockdowns and stuff in the UK. And it looks like we're headed into a second one as well, pretty much anytime soon. But okay. uh, I, I used to enjoy travel and, and going all, all over the world. I've been San Diego Comic Con. I shot a documentary there and a nice little Stan Lee cameo, which is not bad for my first film. I'm quite impressed with that. Yeah, and, no uh, I'm going to San Diego tomorrow just to get out of town for a couple of days. And is, is this a relaxing, relaxing just trip? Just to relax. Just uh, my wife and I are going to go down there for 24 hours. Relax it's only hike. two and a half hour uh, drive. So hmm. it's, it's nice. So looking back, uh, we'll, we'll sort of, we'll head towards end credits on this one and hopefully there will be a sequel, but looking back on your amazing career and it genuinely has been 
you know, looking at all the stuff you've done and reading it all, it blows my mind. A, how you managed to find time to sleep. Uh, <laughs> but but how, so, what are some of the highlights of it? So, if, if somebody asks you that question, like I guess I yourself, what what sort of springs to mind? Well, I mean, so many. Having my first book published was amazing. A life in the cinema, and now you know, having one that's not just limited to a small press run you know, these evil things we do is, is the latest book and having that out and having it so well received and having great authors giving quotes about it, you know, from King to Barker to Joe Lansdale to, uh, you know, it, it's just really, really great. Um, Grady Hendrix, um, making the stand, having it be the highest rated miniseries ever after doing things that were quietly, some successful, some not. You know, uh, Sleepwalkers being the number one box office movie, it's the only time in my life I've had that experience. You know, working with Stephen King, working with people I admire, meeting and working with Clive Barker, becoming friends, and also creating the Masters of Horror dinners was something, it started small, there were just a dozen of us, but it became you know, fairly semi-regular dinners where we would have 35 directors of genre films there, all getting together and getting to know each other in ways they never had before because there was no platform like this where it's like, hey, let's all just get together and have dinner. And the only thing links us is that we have the same line of work. And it wasn't necessarily talk about work so much as just getting together and, and you know, being kind of the enabler of that is pretty thrilling. Masters of Horror offering, giving the opportunity to the greatest filmmakers in the genre around the world to do something their way with no interference, no creative interference and no censorship. They were able to do some of their best work of their lives without having their hands tied. So there was no money and no time, but there was complete artistic freedom. So that being able to do that was really amazing. So there's, there's a lot of high points there. And it's like every time I'm lucky enough to, to do something, whether it's an interview or a new project, that's a high point. I think one of my favorite things with Masters of Horror is I, w- I would put the disc in, press play, and then watch the credits come up and then see who was directing that one. You go, ooh. And then my, my partner, Annette, sometimes she's seen a lot of films, but not as many she doesn't bleed cinema like I do. So a name will come up. She's like, oh, what's he done? So then I would rat lot, you know, rhyme off the films that the director had done. She'd go, like, ooh, and then we get all excited and we'd watch this story unfold and stuff. So it was uh, Masters, of, Masters of Horror was a real treat. So oh, it's, uh, and then that obviously spawned off into Nightmare Cinema. Yes. Which, uh, which I, I really did. Nightmare Cinema 2 needs to, yep, needs to be a thing. We need more of that. We're having conversations, and I'm also talking about the possibility of turning these evil things we do into a limited series, of taking the novellas, not the novel Salome, but the four novellas, and turning them into hour-long films. And what so. what do you think of the platform Shudder? I'm a big fan of that, and I liked that. That was where I saw Nightmare Cinema. So I love a lot of gems. They have <clears throat> they treated Nightmare Cinema very well. And they get great movies like Host and, uh, you know, that's phenomenal. Freaks is great. 
they're really uh, hitting a very high bar. You know, Sam Zimmerman is doing programming and acquisitions and stuff for them. And, and we're talking with them about the possibility of a Nightmare Cinema 2. And those conversations kind of came to a grinding stop when the uh, pan pandemic befell us. But hopefully those conversations will resume soon. I haven't seen Freaks, but I will check that out because you recommended it. But Holst scared me to death. It was, was it? like, <laughs> it really did. I, I went into that film knowing roughly what the film was about and thinking, okay, there'll be a couple of jump scares or whatever. But, you know, we sat watched it in bed midnight one night. I, you know, I was petrified. The, not only is it perfect filmmaking, considering there's a pandemic going on, but it just, the atmosphere from from Zoom pictures it just worked. It's, uh, it's definitely one of the, the highlights of my year. Yeah, you tell me what that's going to be, you know, a Zoom horror movie, you know, it's like, it's yeah. like saying found footage in a way. But it was brilliantly done and uh, and a Brit film, which I'm thrilled to see. Yeah. Um, and, and it exceeded any expectations I might have had. And it was filled with surprises and genuine tension and fear. Yeah. It's it's one of those that uh, I I had to put a comedy on afterwards just to <laughs> then be able to go to sleep. Yeah, good. Okay, nice that you can still get scared after all. Isn't it just because you know I, I probably watch four or five hundred films a year, and I, I watch all sorts of genres, and very very few films still scare me. I think one of the classics, The Changeling, still unnerves oh, me. I uh, love that. Peter Medak is is a good friend, and and he did one of the Masters of Horror because i am so in love with that film same yeah. absolutely I mean, that pipe banging still freaks me out oh. and and yeah that's one of the one of the classics i think and george romero's night of the living dead so yeah. film from the late 60s very low budget black and white but it still scares the bejesus out of me that film yeah. I, I love it and toby hooper's texas chainsaw massacre as well i was 20 28 before i watched that film because i was so scared to watch it i don't because I, I I don't mind films with gore in it, but I don't I don't gravitate towards films with tons of gore. And I thought that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was just going to be wall to wall blood and guts. It's not, thankfully, but it yeah. is. It's so it grabs you even decades after. Uh, it's we a masterpiece, and it's a title that scares people off. Yes, the word yeah. chainsaw kind of unnerves people, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but. but a huge congratulations on your Lifetime Achievement Award, Mick. Thank you so much. Looks, looks amazing. But a, a, an extra two thank you. One, for doing this conversation. It has genuinely made my year. I've, uh, I've, thank you. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But for all the work that you've done and for all the work that you will do, because there's lots yeah. more to come. So that's like Lifetime Achievement Part 1 that you've got there. <laughs> so there'll probably be another, another statue at some point in another you know, 20, 30 years or whatever, you will get another one. Uh, Stuart, thank you so much. It's a total pleasure. You enjoy the rest of your day and a huge thank you to Grimfest as well. I, I do wish that we were sitting off in this conversation face to face as in I could buy you a drink, but one day, hopefully, that Maybe will happen. Yeah. Maybe next year. So you enjoy the rest of your day, Mick, and thank you once again. Have a good night, Stuart. Okay. Take, Take care. Bye-bye.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.